You are listening to the Canadian Immigration Podcast, episode 101. The Canadian immigration process can be complex and frustrating. With the Canadian Immigration Department making it virtually impossible to speak to an officer, there are a few places to turn to for trusted information. The Canadian Immigration Podcast was created to fill this void by offering the latest on immigration law, policy, and practice. Please welcome ex-immigration officer and Canadian immigration lawyer, Mark Holthy, as he is joined by industry leaders across Canada, sharing insight to help you along your way. Well, everyone, welcome back to another episode. This is our business immigration series, and I'm here with my co-pilot, Alicia Backman-Bahari. How are you, Alicia? I am doing really well, Mark. I'm excited to be on episode 101 today. Indeed. We were celebrating our centennial 100th episode last time, and wow, it's a little bit more of a mouthful now when I'm doing the little intro, and now I've got another digit to add on, and I wonder... Could we get to a thousand? I guess we'll see. Well, at this rate, well, the other, mm. the other reason, Mark, I like episode one hundred and one is it kind of reminds me of school, right? I don't know how the naming conventions are for other countries, but often in Canadian universities we have, you know, chemistry one hundred and one, right? So it's kind of that entry level, you gotta know stuff. So here we are, episode one hundred and one. Well, I relied heavily on the um, chemistry for dummies. So, uh, yeah. And then it was a step up to the 101 classes, but absolutely. <laughs> so, yes. And today we're going to talk about a question that we get asked all the time from our employer clients. The HR manager gives us a call. They've got a worker who's coming to Canada. And the question is, does my employee really need a work permit? Mm-hmm. So what are we going to cover, Alicia? And that is the question of the day. So, One of the things that I am going to cover, and we mentioned this briefly in our last podcast episode when we were just kind of giving an overview, but keep in mind that the answer to this question is very important because there is a contravention of the act section in section 124 of the Immigration Refugee Protection Act that actually says, every person commits an offense who employs a foreign national in a capacity in which the foreign national is not authorized under this act to be employed. And so if you're an HR manager and somebody's asking you, can I work in Canada? And you say, yeah, sure, you can work in Canada. And they do, then you could be committing an offense under the Immigration Refugee Protection Act. And what's worse is there's a deemed knowledge provision. So under Section 2, it says, for the purposes of the other section, a person who fails to exercise due diligence to determine whether employment is authorized under this act is deemed to know that it's not authorized. So basically, if you've not done your homework, if you're not listening to this podcast, then you might be stuck with a deemed knowledge that, you know, you can't be giving that advice. You can't be telling people that they can come to Canada. And that opens up a whole other can of worms about Section 91 and who is authorized to give immigration advice also. So if you're an HR manager, it is really important that you don't fall into the trap of giving immigration advice if you're not properly authorized to do so as, you know, an immigration lawyer or an immigration regulated person. And let's be clear here. The example that Alicia gave is one of 
relatively innocent mistake, maybe a little willful blindness, but this is not talking about the situation where you are the global mobility uh, manager and it's Friday at 4 p.m. and you are ready to leave the office and a worker says, oh, I'm traveling on Monday to Canada. I have, an, I have a meeting in Toronto to uh, meet with my subordinates who I supervise and you as the global mobility specialist say, well, oh boy, this is going to be really hard to get this turned around. I've got plans for the weekend. Okay, well, just go in, say you're attending meetings and uh, just let them know that, you know, you're not performing any work in Canada and it should be good. And then we'll get the work permit the next time you come through. Okay, so so both of those clearly are, are breaching the Section 124 of the Act, but... Uh, you can be captured even when it's innocent. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And these are not kind of Mickey Mouse provisions. These are actual contraventions of the legislation and it carries criminal penalties. You could be facing, you know, jail time potentially if you're if you're breaching the act or also if you're misrepresenting or counseling misrepresentation, which are separate offenses. Counseling misrep is 126 under the act as well. So it's really important if you are an HR professional and you're working for a large company and Absolutely, I get it. I understand the pressures here and that maybe you're dealing with a VP or somebody very senior who just says it's always been fine in the past and you don't want to be that squeaky wheel that's trying to gum up the works, but it's important and it's legally important and you got to get it right. Absolutely. And it's also important to note that if you have good immigration counsel, give them a quick call because there may be something that's legitimate that is possible to turn around quick um, or something like the, you know, the 30 or 60 day rule um, in some circumstances that might be there to save you without exposing yourself to potential, you know, liability, criminal and otherwise. And so 15 or 30, Mark. Sorry, 15 or 30. Yes. Thank you. Oh, man, I'm trying to expand the law here. Maybe the Minister of Immigration is listening to me and, and they'll agree that 15 or 30 days is just not enough. All right. And that's a good reminder if, as we're going about our little podcast here and you have any suggestions for um, topics and things that we're covering or you've got a correction because we're definitely not perfect. And if you hear any, uh, anything that we say that's not accurate, then send an, e- an email to info at healthylaw.com and we will correct it in the next episode. All right. And it allows you to engage with us, which is what we want. We want you guys to to be a part of this and and, uh, go along our journey as we carry out this business immigration series. Now, Alicia, now that we've scared everybody into not employing or encouraging people to work without authorization, there's some crazy things happening in our country right now with maintained status and these public policies that IRCC is rolling out. So do you want to touch on just a little bit this maintained status problem that's causing a lot of issues for people? So what is it and, you know, how do you rectify it? Oh, and this could probably be a whole other spin-off podcast on its own because there have been so many temporary public policies that have been issued in the last two years that it almost makes your head spin. So as an immigration lawyer, Mark and I are constantly watching all of the various platforms to figure out what the latest news is, the the policies that have been released, the interpretation of those policies, how they're actually being implemented on the ground. And there have been so many. And right now, I feel for employers who have employees who are foreign nationals. And when I mean foreign national, 
So a foreign national by definition is somebody who's not a Canadian citizen or a Canadian permanent resident. That's what a foreign national is. And so if you have a foreign national employee, the biggest thing as an employer is you need to make sure that that person has authorization to work. Well, guess what? Right now, the processing times, if a person has applied to renew or extend their work permit, are like five months plus potentially. And so you might have an employee who's basically trapped in limbo and you're trying to figure out, do they actually still have status to work for me? And we used to call it implied status and now it's called maintained status. Dumb, 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 dumb. Either way, lipstick on a pig, lipstick on a pig is what I would (laughs) classify that as no functional change whatsoever other than optics, but that's the political world we're in. Yeah. So maintaining status is important, but we're talking about situations where you're looking at somebody having submitted an extension application prior to their work permit expiring. So let's say their work permit was going to expire June 30th of 2022, and they submitted an extension application June 1st of 2022, and hey, they still haven't heard, right? And maybe we're into 2023, and you're trying to figure out, can I keep paying this person? Is it legal? And technically, as long as they've submitted that complete application prior to their first work permit expiring, they should have implied or maintained status to continue to work for you but here's the kicker under the same conditions that they were working before so that probably means the same job duties the same job title the same job location and the same employer and we can talk about this more but some work permits are employer specific and some are open you can work for any employer. So one situation where you can have an employee working without a work permit is if they have this maintained status, right? They have applied for the document, but they just haven't received a decision yet back from immigration. And the important point here is that if this is a new hire for you and they're in maintained status, more than likely, and seek proper legal advice here, but more than likely, they're not authorized to work for you if they're a new hire. The maintained status allows them to maintain the terms and conditions of their, of their, you know, the work permit at the time in which they filed the extension. Yeah, and there is, all right, so here's another temporary public policy. There is a temporary public policy because immigration realizes that sometimes people who were stuck here during the pandemic needed to find a new employer and maybe that new employer actually went to the effort of properly getting a labor market impact assessment. And if they did, they were approved that LMIA and the employee was actually named on it. And that employee then had submitted a work permit change of conditions and they did an extra step of asking for interim authorization to work under the proper public policy code, then they might be able to work for you. Yeah, it is, it is super painful. And this, with all of the policies, the public policies, so much of, of what we know in the world of immigration and in, especially with the foreign workers um, has has been turned upside down because of that pandemic. And we're starting to level off a little bit. And some of those really creative policies that the government created are, are, you know, are coming to an end. And so you have to be very careful if you understood things to be a certain way, say through 2021 or 2020, 
um, don't just assume that those policies that were in place, those favorable policies are still there and you could catch yourself unaware. All right, Alicia, I've got a situation that I know companies face. So you've got an employee who's on maintained status working with a company, but they have business meetings in the U.S. Well, can they leave and come back? Uh, of course, I know the answer to this, you guys. I'm just setting it up. But <laughs> can you leave and then come back and continue working on maintained status? No. no, here's the thing. Maintained status is tenuous. So it's only if somebody remains inside of Canada physically that you continue to have that status. And hopefully people know this, but there are probably situations where employees don't realize this and maybe the HR manager doesn't realize it and doesn't tell the employee. But if you have an employee who has submitted their application, is waiting for months, and they have all of a sudden an important meeting to go to in the U.S., the instant they leave Canada, they lose their maintained status. They cannot come back in and continue to work for your company. Yeah. And so you need to be very, very careful and pay attention and make sure that your workers are advised because sometimes they won't even tell you. Sometimes they'll just hop on a plane and go. And the next you hear about it is when they're flying back into Canada and they tell the border service officer, um, the BSO, that uh, they've got maintained status. And then the BSO says, well, congratulations. I will allow you back in as a visitor, but you can't resume work until your work permit is issued. And can you imagine, Alicia, let's say the work permit was just filed. Their previous one, you know, just expired because they got it in just under the gun. They called us with like two days and we quickly filed an extension application. But processing times of, of five months, which seems like five years to some people, um, and then the individual can't work. Um, so, yeah, proactive planning is absolutely critical. Yeah, and making sure that you're counseling those employees properly too. Because the other thing that happens when people are on this kind of limbo maintained status for a long time is then employers start to get worried about healthcare coverage and employees start to worry about that too. And depending on which province you're in, sometimes that healthcare coverage is going to lapse as soon as the work permit lapses and or the driver's license is going to lapse as soon as the work permit lapses. And if you're required to drive for work, that can be a huge deal. Yeah, absolutely. Let's touch on one other a crazy thing that has resulted as a, you know, has arrived here in terms of immigration policy as a result of COVID and the complications. And that's students' ability to work full time, which both you and I are strong, strong uh, opponents to this. But can you just talk a little bit more? Because on the surface, employers are like, sweet, international students, you know, studying, now they can work for me full time, which oh my goodness, if I had tried to do that while I was going through school, I never would have made it to law school. Like, there's no way you can maintain good grades completing your undergrad while working full time. And so I think yeah. it's a disastrous policy, really knee jerk. But what are your thoughts? Uh, and so what we're talking about here is really regulation 186. And so we're looking at a whole bunch of situations where people could be authorized to work without a work permit. And a lot of them most of them are listed in Regulation 186. So 186U is talking about that maintained or implied status. 186 sub V is talking about off-campus work. And this is the one where immigration has 
tweaked because the regular rule is that you can only work up to 20 hours during authorized school breaks. And there are a whole bunch of wrinkles here. One of the things I did was I actually wrote a blog article on our Whole Seed Law website all about can students really be working more than 20 hours because there is a temporary public policy. It's only in place until the end of 2023. And it has a whole bunch of stipulations and requirements that I think are going to trip out trip up a whole bunch of students, but also could potentially trip up employers who think that they are properly hiring somebody who's a full-time student, but maybe it's actually unauthorized illegal work. Yeah. And this stuff usually doesn't surface until months and months later, maybe even years when the individual goes to apply for permanent residence or to apply for a post-grad work permit, whatever it might be. That's often when these periods of unauthorized work surface and it's, it's disastrous for these kids. Yeah. And I mean, the public policy rationale in terms of allowing off campus work is because in some circumstances, so there is also another um, section that allows on campus work. So if you're actually studying on that campus, you can work. Usually you can work full time, but you also have to maintain your conditions as a study permit holder, which means you have to be passing all your courses and attending school and actively participating in your studies. And just like you mentioned, Mark, I don't know how many hours there are in a day when you're working full time. So anything over 30 hours and you're also studying full time. That is a lot of a lot of work and study for one person at one time. And I think probably immigration had this temporary public policy because they were looking at relaxing the rules to get another source of employment for potential employers. But I don't know how good this is for students because I worry that they might be pressured to work full time and their studies might fall by the wayside. And if that happens, guess what? They've lost the authorization to work the instant they're no longer a full time student. Yeah, exactly. Okay. So we've talked now about the concept of maintained status, working while you're waiting for your work permit to be processed, the challenge dealing with international students. Uh, Let's talk about the business folks and those on work permits. So I made the little mistake of the short-term entry exemption. No, it's not 60 days, 15 or 30. What's your take on this, Alicia? Yeah, so... I don't like this as a a solution. It's kind of like a Band-Aid. So if you happen to have a one-off situation where you need to bring somebody in and that person's going to be coming for less than 30 days, there's different scenarios where at 15 or 30 days will qualify. But you also have to have a high-skilled national occupation classification code. So it's not for everybody. You can't just bring in a regular laborer under these provisions. And also you can't continue to use these provisions. So once somebody is used at once, you've got to wait for six months before it can be used again. All right. Let's talk about the general business visitors. And mm-hmm. we touched a little bit on that in the previous episode, but this is one of the most complicated. And I can remember creating lists for my corporate clients in the early days. These are absolute no's. These are kind of maybes you should call me. And these are 100% yeses. And I can tell you yeah. the 100% yes list is shrinking and shrinking and shrinking these days. So mm-hmm. our 186 and 187, this yep. drives the ship for us. 
Absolutely. So it's worth actually taking a look at the legislation here. So regulation 186 sub A, and that is also going to refer you to regulation 187. And so these are circumstances where people would be authorized to come in as business visitors. However, as Mark indicated, it is super specific. So it's not everybody who's going to fall within these specific exemptions. And if you get it wrong, then you're working without authorization. So one of the things that's important to look at is 187 itself. And it says, you've got to be engaging in international business activities without directly entering the Canadian labour market. What's that mean? So it does give 187 sub 2 actually gives specific cases. They say the following foreign national are business visitors and they give three examples so foreign nationals purchasing Canadian goods or services for a foreign business or government or receiving training or familiarization in respect of such goods or services so there's sub a there's sub b and this one tends to happen a little bit more often foreign nationals receiving or giving training within a Canadian parent or subsidiary of the corporation that employs them outside Canada if the production of goods or services that results from the training is incidental. So any production. So this is the kicker, is making sure that if you're coming up for training, that all of these parameters are met. And then there's also sub C, which talks about foreign nationals representing a foreign business or government for selling goods, but that's a little bit more rare. And then we're not done yet, Mark. There's all these factors. And so it talks about what is deemed not to be entering the Canadian labor market. And it says only if the primary source of remuneration for the business activities remains outside of Canada and the principal place of business and actual place of accrual of profits remain predominantly outside Canada. And I think, um, I think back to times where I've had, it happens more in kind of construction and, and that kind of world where you have an individual that needs to either give or receive training. And the only way you can do that training is actually on the job site. And so the question is, is the person really shadowing, you know, or are they manning the machine or the trainer who's coming up? Um, you know, that's doing the training, is it truly, like you identified, um, incidental, uh, you know, where any, any production is, is incidental? It's hard to say that it is. So it's, yeah, in most cases, in those circumstances, when, it, when we're in the gray area, we will err on the side of caution and, and, and uh, try to obtain a work permit. But in all honesty, you know, 187, this to be, it's very, very effective and very useful for international companies when the circumstances are genuine. And, you know, we don't practice U.S. immigration, but I remember um, I remember in the days that, the, you know, the ability to go down for giving training was sometimes um, more strict and more difficult. And so when training needed to happen with cross-border companies, often they would tend to send them up to Canada because of this general provision under the Immigration and Refugee Protection Regulations. So... It's interesting yeah. to see how there, the world's evolved. Yeah, and there's some practical things to think about too. I, I had a consultation with an employer not too long ago who was in this situation and trying to figure out, you know, will this qualify under the business visitor exemptions under 187 for training? And one of the questions I asked was, how long 
how long is this person coming up to give a receive training? And if the answer is, you know, three months, well, you probably have a problem, right? So there is kind of a, a logic test that you need to be able to straight-facedly tell that immigration officer that you're coming up for a specific training regime or you have like a schedule of training that you've laid out and it cannot go on for months and months. Logically, that doesn't make sense. Yes. And another, if you, it cuts both ways, right? So then if you have, and this is where we, you know, HR managers will get into trouble all the time because the person's just coming up for a single day for their meeting and they say, well, I'm only here for a day. And in those circumstances, the duration that you're in Canada is completely irrelevant when it comes to whether or not you need a work permit. So you have to watch that because it cuts both ways. That's right. All right, let's shift gears. And I want to talk a little bit about these free trade agreements that, uh, that we alluded to in, in uh, episode 100. Um, so how can these be benefit, benefit uh, or beneficial, I should say, in the context of work permit exemptions? Mm-hmm. And so not only do you have business visitor categories under the general provisions of Regulation 186 and 187, but there are also specific provisions that define business visitors a little bit differently in some of the free trade agreements. And there are too many to get into in the next few minutes, but know that there are a whole number of free trade agreements that sometimes have provisions that are particular for business visitors. Mm -hmm. And that is a little bit of a teaser, you guys. So we do not have all the free trade agreements built into our 10 episodes because we're going to be a little bit more laser focused, but we will on our agenda, and we've got it out there, um, having individual episodes on these uh, free trade agreements where we can demystify some aspects of it and point out things that you may not be aware of for your company, for your employees, especially if you're located in one of these uh, member countries. So stay tuned for that in future episodes. And another reminder, if if you like what you're hearing, then by all means, subscribe to the podcast. And this is probably a good opportunity, Alicia, to just take a little commercial break if we will and then we'll come back in just a second this episode of the canadian immigration podcast is sponsored by the canadian immigration institute one of the best sources of video content on canadian immigration to help you navigate your way through the canadian immigration process Head on over to the YouTube channel where there's tons of video content and you can join Mark, yes, myself, in a number of live video streams, Q&As, all designed to help you navigate your way through this crazy Canadian immigration process. When you're done there, like and subscribe and then head on over to the CanadianImmigrationInstitute.com where you can find all those awesome DIY courses that I've been talking about. Thank you, Canadian Immigration Institute. You are the sponsor of this amazing little podcast. All right, we're back here talking about all of the various work permit exemptions that employers can possibly benefit from with very careful, careful assessments. Um, But let's shift to probably one of the most common work permit exemptions that really involves work and that's the after sales service or warranty work and it does transition into supervisors the training and installation as well but can you talk a little bit about that Alicia? 
Yeah, so there has to be an after sales service agreement or a warranty agreement, and you've got to have merchandise, right? So these are things that are really important to figure out, like where was the equipment actually manufactured? And is there an agreement in place to have that equipment actually serviced later on? Because if you haven't built it in, then it's really difficult to try to say after the fact that people are going to be coming in to service that equipment. Yeah, and that's one of the main um, problem areas that we see with our companies is they have entered into some type of purchase contract. It could be for software, it could be for hardware, it could be for equipment, machinery, whatever it is. And there is no specific provision that contemplates after sale service. And so then companies will say, well, can we build it in now? And, you know, the short answer is probably not Uh, but it forms an an integral part of whatever you're doing. And so most companies by now, I think, kind of get it when they're doing cross-border sales, um, international, global sales. They they understand that the need for this after-sales service is critical, and especially for companies that are entering into brand new markets. Um, You know, I remember there was a time where I had a company that had uh, acquired this really novel directional drilling equipment from a company in Germany. And most smart companies, uh, they make money on the sale, but they also make money on the servicing after. So they don't really do a spectacular job teaching the, uh, you know, the company that has acquired the software or the equipment, you know, on how to maintain it or to service it uh, in the case, you know, there are problems. And so, um, so most companies now that are, that are relatively sophisticated have these provisions built into agreements. But if you're a company, you're looking to dive into a new area and you're looking to acquire uh, new, new, uh, a new product or equipment, whatever it might be, it's critical, absolutely critical that if you don't have the in-house support to, to handle this, the service part, um, but even warranty, right? That warranty work you must build that in insurance within the original contract of sale. Yeah. And it's also interesting because there are supervisory provisions or training provisions under this subsection. And sometimes people get confused, right? They say, well, they kind of mix up the 187 entry under, you know, 2B with supervising and training in this section. Because interestingly, immigration doesn't talk very much about just the regulation 187 by itself, but they do talk about after-sales services. So be careful if you're looking at supervising and training. Sometimes you're going to be under this after-sales services and warranty, and sometimes you might be looking at the general provisions under 187. But yeah, if you're you're supervising installation, then it's got to be specialized machinery purchased or leased outside of Canada, or if you're dismantling equipment purchased in Canada for relocation outside of Canada and you can't do hands-on work. One piece of advice we would give everyone, um, you know, obviously if you're coming from a country that doesn't require a visa, a lot of this is dealt right at the port of entry and you're relying upon that service, that person, you know, undertaking the warranty to not only know how to make the repairs and, and, uh, and, and service the equipment, but understand this, this particular provision with, within the immigration act. And, very, in many, many cases, far too many cases, I've seen situations where the person coming in is armed with a contract and nothing else. 
And then they're left to explain to the border officer how they meet the requirements of this particular provision. And not all border officers are created equal. And this after-sale service provision is actually fairly complex. And when an officer sees, sees someone who's coming in to do work, the natural instinct is to assume they need a work permit. And if you're you know, your, your, your serve after sale service specialist that's going in to do this is not apprised of how this works. Um, they can see themselves getting, you know, sent back. And especially when it's warranty or equipment shut down and there's huge, you know, financial ramifications for not getting the equipment back up and running to have that person sent back when really <clears throat> they were fully qualified can be disastrous. And so we never, ever want any of our our companies that we act for to have their individuals go through that port of entry without a full package um, of of documentation, instructions, submissions to support the entry. Um, So then the papers can do the talking instead of the, the service technician. Well, and it is interesting, Mark, because I think not all immigration lawyers are created equal either. And sometimes we fall down on our job of actually instructing that employee in terms of making sure that they understand what the law says and what they're allowed to do and not do. And so one of the things I love about our model and the way that we work at Healthy Immigration Law is that in addition to talking to the employer, we also talk directly to the employee. And not only do we give them that package of documentation, but we explain it to them so that when the officer asks them asks them questions at the border, they are able to properly articulate what they're doing and why. Yeah, that's a great, uh, thanks for bringing that up. I just had a call yesterday. Uh, someone was referred to our office, but they're down here in Lethbridge and they're looking at bringing in a number of workers and they've been calling around to see, you know, who can provide advice. So they've been calling, you know, local consultants. Um, you know, they've been contacting firms that have virtual presences here. At least they don't actually have an office in Lethbridge, but they've got some post office address or something. Um, and uh, and then they and then he contacted me, and 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 I talked with him for a little bit. And I love, absolutely love, telling people, look. We are all about education. We want to empower you and educate you so you understand so that when we go through this process, you will be able to identify the pitfalls and we really are here to collaboratively support you. Direct lawyer to, you know, to company. There's no middle people. And, uh, and uh, he, was, he was actually really quite surprised because in most cases when we're entering into the world of say labor market impact assessments outside of the after sale service world, but generally speaking, you know, companies often don't have a clue what their representatives are doing. And it happens more frequently um, in, you know, with, with some representatives versus others. You know, not all, like you said, are created equally. And some lawyers are all about pushing things through as quickly as possible. And others like us like to take our time and make sure that the employers are up to speed with, with everything so that risks are mitigated. And, yeah. you know, and then we have ongoing abilities to support them. But, uh, but yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, and not just the employer knowing what's going on, but the employee too. I, I had a consult this week with somebody who said, okay, well, I want to apply for express entry. And I said, great, what kind of work permit are you here on? And he said, a closed work permit. And I said, okay, what kind? And he's like, I don't know, my company did it for me. And so 
if the employee has no idea what the company has actually submitted on their work permit, it can be disastrous for their long-term permanent resident options. And so it is so important that the employer understands what's going on and the employee understands too, because it really can affect their future and whether that port of entry officer is actually going to grant them the document or not. Yeah. And, and, and that's another thing, you know, for years and years, I did a lot of global business immigration and, um, you, you know, when you have companies that are pushing through 100, 200 workers a year, it becomes kind of a, a volume kind of thing. And, um, the more efficient and, you know, these, I remember I would bid on RFPs and I, you know, I would, uh, I, I would never get them because there were companies that were offering to, um, you know, obtain work permits for however X many dollars and I could never compete with them. And I couldn't figure out why until I started to realize that it was apples to oranges. What I was offering was so much more comprehensive than what they were. But, you know, in this world, as companies start to realize how volatile this whole process is, I think they're looking for that education and that component. And that's why we transformed our entire firm. That's why healthy immigration law is just does things a little bit differently. Okay. So this, as you guys watch here, and as you listen to these episodes, there's a a roadmap that we're creating for you. So we kind of talked a little bit in episode one, well, episode 100 uh, on how to hire a foreign worker in Canada. We, we kind of introduction, we provide a little bit of an intro into some of the high you know, 10,000 foot level things you need to think about. In this episode, we talked about the work permit exemptions. And um, now in the next episode three, we're going to transition into an overview of the International Mobility Program. Now, each and every one of these things that we talk about in episode three, we'll probably have a separate podcast to dive in a little bit deeper. But the goal here is to give employers a roadmap so that they can follow it through to determine the least well, the path of least resistance, I guess. And of course, the end result is, yes, you need an LMIA, but episode three, we're going to talk about some of the options that are available to think about that would um, basically eliminate the need to have to go through an LMIA. So work permits, essentially, that are required, but they're LMIA exempt. And uh, do you want to give a little sneak peek, Alicia, into some of the the ones that we're going to be um, talking about in episode three. Mm-hmm. And just to summarize, so episode two today, what we're 101, sorry, mm-hmm. <laughs> episode two in the series on business immigration. But episode 101, we've been talking about situations where you do have an employee who's coming into Canada, but for a specific exemption applies and they don't need to have a work permit. And to sum it up, go take a look at regulation 186. Those are the situations. So there's a lot of them. It starts at sub A and it goes all the way to sub X. We almost have like the entire alphabet of exemptions under 186. So if you have, you know, emergency service providers or judges or religious leaders or civil aviation inspectors or public speakers or military personnel, that's where we're looking. That's what we mean by the business visitor exemptions plus all of the other exemptions under specific circumstances of 186. However, looking ahead to episode 102, if we're now saying, all right, we've taken a look at regulation 186, we're stuck, none of this applies to us, then we're now looking at the world of the International Mobility Program. That means your employee needs a work permit, 
but hopefully they don't need the LMIA, the dread LMIA. So under the International Mobility Program, those are situations where often or sometimes you can have open work permits, which means they're not tied to a specific employer. And it also sometimes means there is an employer specific element. So if you have a named employer on that work permit, then that employer actually has an added step that they need to do. They need to go through and they need to file an employer portal declaration. So an offer of employment, and that has to be done before that employee can show up and ask for an IMP employer specific work permit. And I will remind our listeners that if you have not filed a work permit through the International Mobility Program for, say, a year, and it's been some time, there have been some significant changes, and you definitely want to to get caught up with those. You know, obviously, we're here. You can book a consult with us. We can give you a little bit of a, a 101 on this particular issue, but it's causing some problems, especially when you're you know, there's foreign service providers that are coming into Canada now that need work permits and, and there's, there's issues. And we'll talk about those in episode 103, 101, 102, 102. boy, boy. Okay. We're going to, we're going to get this sorted out in the next episode. So what are some of the, the various topics? I'll just kind of hit on them at a high, high level. So CUSMA, we talked about that, the Canada, US, Mexico agreement, other free trade agreements, intercompany transfers, um, International Experience Canada, which is, you know, for young people, post-grad work permits for the students who then go on to to work after completing their studies. Yes, study permit. Alicia talked about that, um, you know, the ability to work while on a study permit. And uh, yeah, we're going to hit on the spousals and the other open work permits as well. And there's been some changes that we're also going to uh, let you know. And there will be future changes on these open work permits for family members of foreign workers. So We'll, we'll get into a few more details on that in the next episode as well. A few, yeah, a few other things we'll, we'll cover are unique cases. And so there are circumstances where people have bridging open work permits if they've filed a PR application already, mobilité francophone if they happen to be a French speaker that's living outside of Quebec. We also have those reciprocal work permits under C20, significant benefit work permits under C10, and of course the CUAET for Ukrainians. So Absolutely. those are other unique circumstances. And as you can see, we will slowly transition to the new confirmation exemption codes. We still know them by the previous version and oh my goodness, they just have to make our life difficult, don't they? But we'll we'll sort through the code. So you guys have been around for a while, you know what we mean by C10, C11, C12, all those kinds of things. So all right, well that's about it for us to in this episode. Thanks so much for joining us. Remember, if you like what you hear, let other people know that, hey, the Canadian Immigration Podcast is up and running again and they've got awesome content. Um, like, and uh, I guess in this case, you're probably just going to subscribe to the podcast through iTunes or Spotify or wherever you listen to your podcast episodes. And um, if you have any questions or suggestions for future content or feedback on what we're talking about in these episodes, send an email to info at healthylaw.com. And make sure to check out our website and all the other offerings that we have, including Alicia and I going live every Thursday at noon Mountain Time on the Canadian Immigration Institute's YouTube channel, where it's your opportunity to jump on. You can ask us anything and we answer those questions live. All right. Thanks, everybody. And uh, thanks, Alicia, for joining. Thanks, Mark. 
Thank you for listening to the Canadian Immigration Podcast. Your trusted source for information on Canadian immigration law policy and practice. If you would like to book a legal consultation, please visit www.holtylaw.com. You can also find lots more helpful information on our Canadian Immigration Institute YouTube channel, where you can join Mark on one of his many Canadian Immigration Live Q&As. See you soon, and all the best as you navigate this crazy world we call Canadian Immigration. Sure.